Welcome, Legionaries, to episode 27 of Legion Cast. Today we are going to be talking about Prospero Burns. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me are my co-hosts, Brandon, and my brother, Maniple. Welcome, Legion brothers, Legion sisters, and often forgotten, but never by me. Believers of Magnus doing nothing wrong, welcome to Legion Cast. Happy to be here, everybody, and Manipole, always a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me on again. I wasn't sure if I was going to make this recording, but here we are. And uh, greetings to all the long beards out there who are tuning in. Remember that when things are going really bad and on your worst day, try shouting, wake up, wake up, it's a nightmare. Let's see if that helps. Brandon, would that be of any use to you? Uh, this week, honestly, it might be a little bit of use to me, but I don't think I'm going to wake up. I think I'm just going to continue living the nightmare. But speaking of nightmares, great book that we're uh, we're reviewing today. Well, some of us think it's a great book. You don't mean that. I don't mean that at all. I don't like this book, if I'm being honest. I know that's the hot take here, so it'll be a fun conversation. Look, it's we don't have to like every book that we review. And that being said... Sometimes some of us are just wrong. Yeah, well, I don't think I'm wrong on this one. I just think that Warwick has a massive hard on for Dan Abnett, and he can never let. All that right, go. don't say that. Do not say the I've... Unremembered Empire. No, I don't like the Ravenor book. books. I do not like the Ravenor books. I think they are way too dry. Also, the Unremembered Empire is a shit book. All right, well, we'll get into it in the book section. But why don't we talk about some hobby news because we've had a little bit uh, here in the past couple of weeks and not just Epic. Oh yeah. Uh, our other co-host Paul is going to love this reveal. Yeah, absolutely. So first things first, we got, uh, gosh, work. What the heck is this thing called? This flyer? It's the Arvis lighter, which is, I think uh, solar auxiliary auxilia can take it. It's a, it's a transport. That's all I know. Yeah. Um, it looks interesting what i didn't see in the article and maybe you guys saw it and maybe i'm just wrong here i didn't see what material it's going to be made out of so i don't know if this thing's plastic or resin i think i remember reading it's a forge world model so it's going to be resin okay so there was already a very small likelihood of me buying it and that i'm not just sure went down to zero i'm not sure what the draw in on draw of it is because i think i remember reading its transport capacity is is very small and when you're running Solar Exilia, don't you take, like, huge blocks of infantry? Yeah, I honestly really don't know enough about Solar Auxilia to to make that I think this is one assessment. for a little more research on our part, because I seem to remember in the old days, it was a well-liked model. And when it went out of production, there were some Greybeards who were angry about that. So that's one I'll look a little bit further into for our next um, Hobby Roundtable and see what I can report. Yeah, maybe we can plunder the vaults on that sucker. Um, but yeah, we've also had some uh, another announcement as of recording today, which is exciting. I know our other co-host, Paul, is going to be just over the moon, I'm sure. Yes, he is I'm so sure he excited. Won't have any problem with it at all. For this Sons of Horus teaser that gives them four bolt guns that he already has access to. to do a, a review oh, okay on. yeah you do your thing you do your thing what am i supposed to do now that you've i haven't revealed i haven't even, i've i've shown you the tip of the iceberg okay tell me what to do okay i want you to go to the warhammer community page and look okay. up the sons of horus weapon upgrade kit okay I've, I've got it open 
I haven't seen anything yet, and I'm supposed to do a reaction here. Yes, now okay. we're doing reaction content. Now we're doing reaction content, Longbeards. Um, okay, I see a guy in beaky armor with a big axe, but it looks like that is just going to fit on the regular uh, Mark Six Space Marine whose normal pose is holding a bolter, right? So this is just an arm swap with a big axe. Okay, it's got chains on it. Okay, that's fine. And then you have bolters, but don't they have bolters bolters already? Yes. These are their special bolters. But, so okay. there are some of the, like, just the standard bolters that have Sons of Horus iconography on them. The other bolters, like the more blocky ones, those are yeah. the Bane Strike bolters that are, like, unique to Sons of Horus, but... Paul, the way I understand it, Paul doesn't really care for them. They're not worth it. Well, but they also for Alpha Legion, but I, I think with those chains on them, I don't, that doesn't really seem like an Alpha Legion aesthetic. And some of the hands have stuff, so I don't know if I'd swap those. Um, so you get how many? Just like, okay, there's like 10 plus four axes. <clears throat> and are these going to be plastic? No, they're going to be, I think they're going to be resin. Uh, uh, okay. But so you've only got um, one, two, three, four, five, six of the Bane Strike bolters, and then four of the regular bolters with just Sons of Horus icons. And then you mm -hmm. have four of the um, Carsonian power axes, which again, Paul doesn't take anymore because they're not very good. Interesting. And he'll know more about this than we will. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm glad that we're getting some weapon upgrades, but it seems like I would like to see some other some other stuff for a, a bigger pack. But um, And the number seems odd. Why, why would it be six of the Bane Strike Bolters? Is that like five for a squad and one for a captain or something, for a hero? Potentially. That's kind of my only thought. And why only four axes? That that's, is a very weird number. Yeah, that's the one that I don't get, because assuming that you're going to put one on, like, a Centurion or a Praetor, you don't want run squads of three out of anything, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and if I really wanted, as a Sons of Horus player, if I really wanted a Praetor with a Carsorian Power Axe, I would just go buy the Praetor from the Age of Darkness box, because that axe is super cool. That's a great model. Um, so... I wouldn't be putting that. That that's what I would be running as a centurion or a praetor. So, the interesting question that we're going to have is the price point on this pack of upgrades. What do you guys think it's going to be? Thirty bucks. Thirty thirty five. So for roughly thirty dollars, you're going to be getting enough pieces to probably not outfit a whole squad. When on the flip side, you can spend $47 and get any one of these special or heavy weapon upgrade kits and have enough weapons to out uh, to outfit three to four squads with ten weapons apiece. Well, and I'm seeing something else here. I'm not sure how these fit in with the Mark VI plastic kit because the, you, you only get, um, at the bottom there, six arms that are missing a hand. So does that mean of all these options, can you only ever use six of them out of this kit? That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah, because it would seem to, seem to me that if, you're, if they're going to give you 10, 14 weapons, you should have 14 arms, right? 
So the, there are four Umbra pattern bolters that only have one hand attached. I think the, the Mark VI kit, um, the bolters have both hands attached, right? So even these Umbra pattern bolters are not compatible with the Mark VI kit. Well, you'd have to do some, some cutting or some, some sort. I don't know, but yeah, that seems odd. Okay, well, I guess once we see a little bit more about them, I don't know, but it's still like we. How long ago was that assault marine kit teased? I don't. I don't think that comes out until next spring, if memory serves. The that the, the, you know you're talking about the the forge world resin kit, the despoiler kit that's already out. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they're not going to take bolt guns anyway. I think they come with pistols. Yeah, they come with pistols and right. chain swords. So. Same with assault marines. So they're right. not going to be taking bolt guns. Well, we should take some bets and see at our next Hobby Roundtable, will Paul be picking up this kit or not? I'm going to bet no. I'm going to bet no. I'm going to also bet no. <laughs> Pay up, listeners. All right, there you go. That's yeah. the reaction content for you guys today. Be sure to like and subscribe. Yeah. We're not no, but terrible, do Twitch. That. We're not terrible <laughs> Twitch streamers. We actually had a commentary. Don't worry, pretty soon uh, Warwick is going to launch his NPC TikTok. <laughs> Hot dog, yum! Bolt gun shell, boom boom! <laughs> it's just me blowing my brains out. <laughs> Jeez. Anyway. In Minecraft. In Minecraft. In Minecraft, yeah. Okay, so there's our... Uh, this episode's terrible reaction content, anyway. Let's never do that again. Well, let's oh, yeah. get into the book. Let's go. Yeah, let's talk yeah, about the book. All right, let's take a quick break and then let's jump into it. listeners we're going to be getting into prospero burns by dan abnett now now i definitely like this book i think maniple likes the book brandon not a fan and that's okay yeah you know when we get into this book and when we first get introduced to the space wolves which is not right away so i don't want to jump too far ahead i think what it is for me is the first books that i got that were introduced me to the 40k universe it's actually sitting on my shelf right now it was a gift from Warwick. It was the Space Wolves Omnibus by William King. And that set of books is fantastic. And I know that there's been some issues since those books were written with how the Space Wolves were conducted in the 40K setting. And, you know, they kind of leaned into some things that maybe they shouldn't have and leaned away from other things that maybe they should have leaned into a bit more. Uh, but I really just love that original rendition by William King of who the Space Wolves are. And this kind of throws that completely out the window. And that's why I think I don't like the book at all is because they just they don't feel like the Space Wolves that I grew up with and I know. So it's interesting that you that you lay it all out like that, because an overwhelming theme of this story is nostalgia and our our kind of main character Casper Hauser is overwhelmed by nostalgia at, at several points throughout the story. So it's really interesting that you state it the way that you did. So I, 
I wasn't entirely um, uh, sure if I was going to be able to record this, but um, when I when I, w- I went back to thinking about the first time that I that I read it and and really being impressed at the some of the reveals at the end when you finally figure out what's been going on because it does lay out a puzzle, but it does take 450 pages to get to the end. And I was going to ask um, if 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 one of us could make it like. If you had a criticism of, of the book, what, what would it be? And so I, I'll say I do like the book, but if I had to level a criticism, I'd say first off that the title's a little bit misleading because if you pick this up on the shelf, you're expecting probably a campaign against Prospero that a lot of 40K players know about the history between the Space Wolves and the Thousand Suns. You think it's just going to be about the campaign to, to prosecute them. But, but all that takes place in just the last you know few pages. And the rest of it, it goes back. What it actually kind of reminded me of was when we did Fulgrim, because Abnett puts in so much mythology. And I'll talk a little bit about the mythology that he's that he's pulling out here as we get further through the book. But basically, this is a story about a spy. And this got me thinking, too, about Nemesis and how wars are waged here and what's going on behind the scenes in the course of all these big battles. Did you guys pick up on on some of that too? A little bit. And one thing that I wanted to say is that I don't necessarily think of Casper as our main character. He's very much, it's hard to imagine, it's hard for me to imagine him as the protagonist of the story. He's more of a lens. He's, he's not the whole camera. He's just the lens. I was actually going to get into that as one of my big criticisms of the book as well, is that I wouldn't say that Casper Hauser is not our main character. I would say that he is not a character. He barely functions as a lens. Okay. So I think that was a little trap that Dan Ebnett laid for you. Uh, Did you guys look into the story of the real Casper Hauser and who he was? Okay. It's kind of an interesting little little bit of mythology, if I'll put it in there. This goes all the way back to the early 1800s in Germany, where this uh, young boy shows up. In a, in, a, in a town, and his name is Caspar Hauser. And what he says is, I want to be a cavalryman like my father. And he would say, horse, horse, horse. He didn't have much vocabulary. And as they, the people of the town brought him in, they began to question him about where he came from and who he was. He claimed that he had lived his entire life in a small room, just a few feet wide on each side, that and he had a bed of straw, and every morning he'd wake up and there'd be a loaf of bread and a and a bowl of water, and some days there was a the water tasted funny and that made him sleep, and when he woke up he found that his nails were cut, his uh, hair was trimmed, and his straw had been replaced, and he lived that way for as long as he could remember. When he came into town, then some of the and he moved around quite a bit actually over his life, different people would take him in because they took pity on him. Over time, they found out that he was intelligent, he could talk, he could kind of act like a real person. But anytime anyone got to know him, it turned out that he was kind of a a scammer, a charlatan, a fraud. He lied consistently, and it looks as though he faked numerous assaults on himself in order to earn public trust and affection. And the way he died is the speculation was that he had stabbed himself in the chest, and and the, the stab wound went deeper than he intended and ended up killing himself. But it was part of another one of these plans to engender people to his cause and take care of him. Now, the thing is that this draws in the, 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 this idea of the horse, because the wooden horse shows up in Casper's 
possession as well. And how is he found? He's found at the great city of Ur, which is being rebuilt, and he has no history, no name. He's given this name by the old priest who must have heard something about, about this story. And the uh, the if I if I tell you that I'm going to tell you a story about a wooden horse and a city and uh, somebody some people who aren't who they say they are, what myth does that make you think of? Well, that's the Trojan horse of Ilios, right? Yeah, it's the Trojan horse of Ilios, and so Abnet's pulling that back as well. And so this character Casper Hauser is the ultimate Trojan horse. He is put into the 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 space wolves in order to get intelligence on them and they know it and so it's the story is not really so much about casper but it's about him being the trojan horse and what's inside of him and the the quest of the space wolves to try to figure that out so i'd agree more with brandon that no i don't think he is a character he's more of a pawn or he's a little a literal trojan horse Okay, and I have a big problem with that then because that's that's really interesting and that's fascinating and that makes me interested in him as a character that you know as a, as a driver of this story. None of that is in the book. They they mentioned the Trojan horse of Ilios uh, when when he's talking to the protagonist at the end. They do reference the Trojan horse. Um, they do talk about Caspar Onsberhauser uh, being his name. It's all referenced in the story. Well, yeah, but see, I had to look all that up. I saw the name. There's one brief reference to it at the very end about who this person was, but they never explain any of it. And so this is where Abnet is kind of trusting the reader to know. And I think this might be a problem with Europe and America, because I think this story is more well known in Europe than it is over here, because it was like the, 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 the tale of the day, you know, over there. Everybody knew about Caspar Hauser back in the 1800s. So maybe that's part of their tradition and not so much of ours. Okay, that okay that sure that that's fine by me. But I like I said, I just think that that's that's a little too much inference to expect. Yeah, I'd agree with that because I was annoyed that I didn't know more about that story as it's being being told to me. So I'd say that's a bit of a failing of the book. Fair enough criticism. Uh, I will say I really enjoy the opening itself to this story because. At no point in this story do we have an actual perspective of a space marine. When we start off, it's from the perspective of one of these native Fenrisians, and he really lays out the native mythology to the planet. Like, um, he talks about how, like, uh, in, in the very beginning, his village or his ite is under attack by a, a rival tribe, basically. And he talks about how, like, you know, something has happened, and they're mad at us. And he lays out kind of the the reasoning of, of why one of these other tribes would attack them. And it's like he get, lists off some examples like, you know, something unnatural born to livestock or a woman uh, lights out on the ice when there shouldn't be, you know, smoke at an odd time of day out in the wilderness. Uh, and these are all very um, th- these are all things that really stoke the superstition of the natives. And it brings just this this brutal, vicious reckoning upon these locals. And it's probably one of the, the bloodiest 
scenes written out uh, that we've gotten so far. And we're very used to the Astartes ripping one another apart at this point, but this is very different. And Abnett has talked about this in some of the interviews he's done is like the more interesting part to some of these stories is the vulnerable human element. And that's what we see here. And our perspective is from fifth of the Eskimani. The Eskimani are the tribe that are under attack. Yeah. And that was the, that was the part that as I was reading through the book, I think I'd blocked out from my previous reading uh, uh, of it was the description of the the innocent human beings being killed, and in particular that you know the women of the Askamani were known to be particularly beautiful, but they're all being just hacked to pieces. And then later on, when the piano blows up and Casper's girlfriend gets gets killed, we'll talk about that later. I thought, man, what does Abnett have against these poor women? Um, all getting getting killed. But yeah, th- that uh, that opening scene of of the Askamani then fleeing with with Casper uh, because we find out that he's been shot down basically his ship crashed and they call it the disaster or the bad star and the the, the they are able to get him far enough away that he can eventually be rescued by the character that I was actually most interested in was the Astartes named Bear who then rescues him and. His name being Bear is very important to, to the till the end of the story, and it it's kind of this running theme throughout that um, whatever is going on with the way that Hauser has learned Fenrisian languages didn't take wholly, and so he oftentimes mistranslates words. Mm-hmm. But we but we find out then fairly quickly that that he is indeed on Fenris. We talk find a little bit more about his story. But interestingly, in his process of being rescued from this Fenrisian village, he is uh, wounded very grievously. And then he kind of goes through this this passage where it's a um, kind of a, a spirit journey where he's trying to figure out who he is or what he is. And unbeknownst to him, the Space Wolves have completely taken apart his whole body to try to figure out what he is. Is he a spy? Is he a Trojan horse? And really... Eventually, we do find out that he is empty inside, you know, that, that they've rebuilt him as a shell. He's not completely in control of, 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 of his actions, but they decide to make him into a scald. And a scald is the storyteller. So they let him go anywhere he wants, because ultimately the Space Wolves are not afraid of a spy. They always act in the open, and they want their enemies to know they're coming. Did you guys believe that, that they'd be so cavalier with how they let him just wander anywhere he wanted to go in the fang? No, no, this is idiotic. I mean, this is like for for all of their talk of how smart they are and how they think they spent all the time telling you we're not just savages. We think strategically all of this stuff. And the entire basis of this is them making the most idiotic intelligence decision known to any force ever. So I know it is talked about how Hauser has this kind of apprehension as he's moving around that they're, they do treat him with some form of caution. And he he does talk about how, like, if he walks into a room, they get real quiet. So I think there is an element of he sees what they want them to see at some points. But, yeah, it is really weird to just let a spy walk around out in the open. So it's, it's certainly very strange. But... I, I, I don't know, because I think they're trying to get whatever's driving him to act in some way. So maybe they're feeding him 
information in some way. I don't, I don't know. Um, eventually that does work. They, they do use him to draw out the enemy, but that's much further on when they're actually at the, the battle, the, uh, at, at Nikea. Now, I, I think we could probably some, we don't need, probably need to go into detail about this happened then this happened then this happened because a lot of the, uh, I just want to say before we jump too far ahead, my favorite part of this book is the beginning on Fenris. I love the description of the brutality um, because that is, that is Fenris. And I, I think that that is probably, again, my favorite part of the book because it captures what Fenris is so well and how horrible this is a place to live and how brutal it is. And it really helps show the culture of the space wolves because this is where they came from. Yeah. And the provocation for the brutality is important to look at the, the bolt, this rival tribe it completely annihilated the Askamani because a ship crashed in their territory and they recovered a survivor. And that was a death sentence. But now, do you think that that was pushed along by this entity that's guiding the whole thing? Did they then kind of speak in the hearts of that weird, of the other shaman to get them to make this attack? It seems like this is all kind of, because I think that power needed something that would drive Casper to the to uh, to the the Fang eventually, and is this that instigating factor that gets him moving again? It's hard to say because the Space Wolves keep him on ice for what eighty years. I I don't disagree with you. I mean, Hauser is basically a giant MacGuffin to move the plot forward. Um, so I I, I could agree with that. Why is he a M- MacGuffin? E- everything they do is just based off of him them knowing he's a spy and then reacting to that. It's a MacGuffin because yeah, they, they, they could have just shipped him back to Terra and then you wouldn't have had any story. Right? I mean, it's he's he's inconsequential. They, 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 if they had, had, why if they they had reacted him. to him, yeah, if they had reacted to him as anyone else ever would have reacted to, we found out this person is a spy, you don't have a plot. And also, we've already established he does not have a character. Well, uh, in, in his defense, I did like the parts where Casper's going back over his history and kind of showing the development of the conservatory and some of his archaeological digs. Anything that kind of gets us back to Terra to see some of that stuff seems interesting. But that kind of felt like a, it was a, a whole different story. You know, you've, you've got the, the Fenris storyline going on here. You've got Nikea over here, then all these flashbacks where he's on these archaeological digs. And so there could have been a story about him fighting with the Administratum and losing all this this information and that sort of bureaucracy and all that, but that seemed like a, a different story. But again, that seems like, and we do kind of find out at the end that, oh, that was all put in there to push him to go to Fenris. It's all this these machinations, but it just seems a little, a little too um, convenient that all that stuff actually just happened the way that they had planned it to. A little too convenient, I guess. You know what I thought of the entire time, particularly with that stuff. As I was reading this book, I thought this is just a worse version of the Manchurian Candidate. If you've ever so, seen uh, that movie, so work. What that's about is a guy who's been brainwashed to assassinate assassinate the president, and he's waiting for a a keyword. And when he hears this the keyword, he'll go and do it, even though he's a regular upstanding seen, citizen. I've seen Zoolander. Oh right, it was also in the the plot to Naked Gun. Oh, they're when they tried to assassinate the queen. Right. 
the whole the the arc with the conservatory i think is pretty important because it does lay out why the imperium functions the way that it does in 40k because basically the edict of the conservatory is the cataloging of human information when that's not really that's not done in 40k it's kind of this thing that's taken into consideration in 30k but gets kind of swept under the rug so it's why things are so poorly organized later on in you know in the far future so the goal the, the goal of the conservatory was to collect it in such a way that it could still be referenced under the administratum, it would be buried under bureaucracy. So it's still there, but now it's hidden. And not everyone can just get it. It's got to go through a, a process to get there. And that's what really pisses Hauser off, even though we find out later on that that actually didn't happen, that the conservatory was going to be maintained as it was if he would just stick around. But again, he's fooled and and goes to Fenris instead. Right. And that's uh, I will agree that it is very convenient that the the grand manipulator of this story is able to kind of push his buttons in in all the right ways at every every turn of his life uh and it just kind of falls into place that he he winds up on the other side of the galaxy put on ice for 80 years and then thrown back into the mix at the height of the heresy it was really me pulling the strings all along so 30 years from now i can be the one pulling the strings all along what did you think of his interaction with the Order and with his, his buddy, Navid, who tried now, to get him in there? There are a lot of references in there um, from like the Eisenhorn books where they reference um, Annuncia and the Cognite and stuff like that. And that's kind of a, an abnetism where he, he brings in these cults or these practices from other books which it, it does add to the grander scale of the universe itself. So I think that's fairly consistent writing on his part. I enjoyed that. The, the superstition element of it I found pretty interesting. And like um, Longfang says, he's like, yeah, it's a scary story. I felt your fear and Naveed's fear, but it's not the best story you know. Yeah, and again, Abnett brings in the mythology of the eye. We see the eye in there a lot. And... If you read the book in the printed version, whenever there's a, a break mid-chapter, the Fenrisian eye is actually printed in there. And I don't think you guys could probably see it on my copy here, but on those breaks, they put the Fenrisian eye in there. And this is another thing that goes back to ancient human history, where the idea of a sign in the heavens, something like an eclipse or the sun itself, you even look on the back of a dollar bill, it will have the eye of God. This shows up in religious iconography, the eye, and uh, we we have it a lot in uh, now in modern homes. How many people have a ring on the front uh, door on, on the, their front door? That's a little lens that basically says to anybody coming up, "I see you. Mind, be mindful of what you're doing out there." So this is an ancient human symbol that we still are familiar with today. Well, and keeping it contemporary with the rest of the universe in this this story. Who uses an eye as their personal device? The eye of Horus. Yeah, Horus does. So there's there's lots of reference points that you can you can take that to. And so, so um, go ahead. Ha, um, through this book, uh, just a question here because we do see the Thousand Suns show up early at one of the digs, and they think that his name Casper Hauser is a joke, 
Now, how much do you think that the Thousand Sons are actually involved in this story? Or is it just the Great Annihilator who's pulling the strings? Well, you do see why the Thousand Sons are there later on. I think it's the Crimson King book. You figure out why they're there. So there, there is an actually actual story element to why they show up in Boeotia. Is that them covering the tracks, though, of an earlier book saying it makes no sense for them to be here, so we need to come up with a reason? No, they're actually on a mission, and it's a Graham McNeil book. Okay. Um, I would say the Thousand Sons don't hardly appear in this book at all. Even in The Burning of Prospero, this is one thing I actually, again, a major critique of the book is I don't like the action scenes in this book. They're very glossed over, in my opinion. Um, they're very brief. And when it's when you have this long, drawn-out mystery of who is this guy, why is he here, all of this, like, you know, man-with-no-name type thing, I need some good action scenes to break that up, just to keep me into the story and, and you know, and keep things moving a bit. And, and I really didn't feel that. And maybe it's because they're they're kind of infrequent that by the time we get to them, I'm just not interested anymore. Yeah, the, the first big fight we see I, after they get off Fenris is the, against the Quietude and the, the Quietude battler. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to disagree with you, Brandon. I think that they're very well done. I really enjoy them. I think they're engaging. He tells a good story throughout each battle. It just I enjoy it. Okay, tell tell me one that you like. So uh, after the quietude hauser's going through all the death scenes of because he's doing like the funeral right so he's doing the send-off for all the guys that uh that went or that that died during the taking of the graving dock and so he talks about how the the guy that gets his arm shot off and he's he punches the air with the broken rings of armor around his skeletal hand and after the after that individual is killed they talk about how the rest of the space wolves take apart that what is it the the gunnery crew that killed that first the the first kill or i guess the the first space wolf to die during that battle they end up talking about how they are casting out the maleficarum they're hurting it so bad and teaching it or explaining pain to it so that it never returns and they also talk about the duels fought against these super robusts that uh, the quietude utilizes when uh Jormungandr 2 blade fights the the two or three robust while defending hauser after long thing gets hit yeah my problem with those act those scenes that you're talking about though all of those take place over the course of like a sentence or two i, I wouldn't need, even really qualify I don't need that a lot as of, an action scene i don't need a lot of exposition to to enjoy it i i don't know to me it was like this guy fought this thing that's okay. Cool. I guess I'd be somewhere in the middle between you guys. I think that um, there, there were a few times I was reading it where I would say to myself, I'd want a little bit more uh, in particular. And this wasn't a battle scene, but when he finally, uh, we do meet uh, Lehman Russ himself. He has a chance to talk with Hauser. And it seems like that scene went way too short. I was like, Oh, I wanted to hear more about this. And it just moved on. And then I think the, the scene that's, jumps out to me is it's a dream sequence where he's on the hunt with the with Longfang and it, he's it, it's it's retelling the the fight that just happened against 
um, one of these, uh, whatever creature they're fighting. And it was the, the quietude on the quietude home planet. And it's about fighting this big bull, you know, that they're, that they're fighting. But then it turns, you realize, oh, it was a dream sequence. And so that seemed like it cheated a little bit because, well, he's just retelling the story that just happened, but now it's in a dream sequence. It was cool. But I thought, well, why are we, what was the point of that? That the dream sequence is one that I did not understand. I'll admit to that. I, I'm not sure what the the implied secret is that the the great wolves on Fenris are the result of genetic manipulation by the original settlers of Fenris, but that is all speculation. It's all very ambiguous. I know Mag, Magnus alludes to it in Thou- the Thousand Suns book, but I think what uh, I think what Longfang is trying to tell Hauser there is that the maybe the original settlers of Fenris succumbed to something else. I I don't really know what the takeaway of that is. I didn't really understand that bit. I'll just say real quick. Uh, the impression I got was that those wolves were only present in dreams. I don't think we ever saw a real wolf. I think they were all part of the vision. Okay, so here's the question I guess I will pose to you guys. Are there wolves on Fenris? Just give me a yes or a no. Yes. If I, if I only had this book as a reference, I'd say no. Here's my follow-up question. Does that matter at all? Yeah, good point. I guess it, it, it really doesn't. We spend all this time of there are no wolves on Fenris, are there wolves on Fenris, and it does nothing for the story. Well, that's an interesting uh, interesting take on that. I think it's I, the, it, the trying to build the personal mythology of this planet, maybe. So, Brandon, I think what, I think what I'm hearing from you is that this feels a little bit like some modern TV shows where you've just got a bunch of mystery. It's like the mystery box sort of thing. There's a big mystery, but when you open it up, there's nothing inside. And that's annoying. I get that. that, That's kind of how I feel about the whole book. He literally is a mystery box. Apparently, you know, there's a lot of mythological additions that I'm not aware of because I'm not a mythological European mythology expert, but yeah, it, it just ends up kind of, ending up being a nothing burger. And then we haven't gotten there yet, but I would actually challenge that by letting this guy stay with them, they completely fall into the manipulation that they supposedly were so, you know, robustly, oh, we know you're a spy and we're not going to, you're not going to manipulate us. What happens is we know that the Primordial Annihilator wanted the Thousand Suns and Space Wolves to do battle. And that is exactly what happens. So they play directly into his hands because they keep this guy around. I think that was all going to happen anyway because Lehman Russ had already talked to the Emperor and Horus by the time he talks to Hauser. Fair enough. But my, my point being, it, it didn't help having this guy around. It certainly did not help that happen. Because they think he's a thousand suns spy. You just said that it didn't help it happen. It didn't help, or it it didn't. It didn't pre- help prevent. Yeah, it is didn't that help prevent that at all. Well, yeah. there is the scene where Russ is trying to use Hauser as a conduit to talk to Magnus to get him to surrender. But we know from Magnus's perspective, he's cut off communication with the outside galaxy at this point. Well, and this was never his spy. 
Right, but the Space Wolves think he's the spy the whole time. Yeah. Oh, um, I'm looking at page 184. I, I marked this for a reason, but I don't remember why, but I found this line that might, might help a ridge with one of our earlier conversations. They entered the army encampment. It had only been there a few hours, but it was already the size of a large colony town. Arvis and Avis pattern transatmospheric lifters were still coming in and out to make drops in a haze of ice vapor on the far edge. So confirmed, this book was written just to sell Arvis um, transportation ships. You got it. It's a deep fake. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. Um, I will say the one one thing that I thought about was when the Space Wolves break the defenses of the quietude, throwing a big satellite into an ice cap rates surprisingly low on war crimes for me, considering the other things we've seen in these books. Do you guys think the same thing? Yeah, especially like when you get the early three books with like Horus Rising and, uh, and all of that, where people are freaking out because a couple hundred people died on an embarkation deck. And then you see something like this happen. And they're like, Oh my God, they're barbarians. And I'm like, that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess. Yeah. And it, the, the book tries to paint this picture of the space wolves being these unforgivable monsters. Uh, you know, the, there's the one guy that the, the, the kill uh was it the kill commando talking about how or the kill g9k kill commander talking about how the emperor went too far when making these super monsters and that if the galaxy's uh, if mankind is going to take back the galaxy they should do it themselves not create damn supermen to do it and they try to paint this pictures of the space wolves being terrible terrible monsters but compared to a lot of the other full-scale war that we've seen throughout the galaxy so far, they're no more guilty of war crimes than any other space marines up until this point. Yeah, I mean, when you think of it in the greater context of these guys, I mean, I know that uh, the White Scars are also considered to be, like, barbarian-type people, but it kind of boils down to, like, oh, they have beards. (laughs) Like, that's really about it. Like... They, Scar- they are White no Scar's more or no too. less. No, I'm saying they are no more or no less barbaric than any other legion, really. Yeah, I think yeah, when, yeah. when we've seen any of the other combats going on, you know, the space marines tend to be pretty ruthless. They follow orders. They do what needs to be done to finish the job. So I, I, I don't know how the space wolves are really presented as being that much different um, than the other legions. You know, if you, if you were to strip away, like you said, the beards and the charms, what makes them different than the other religions we've seen so far in the books? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think there's I, much. I mean, like the world eaters, they do a good job of show, earning their reputation of being very barbaric. But I mean, that that's because they go in and they just absolutely maim anything. And like they don't that's... even use tact. Well, I mean, they use tactics, but they make a point of going out of their way to be particularly brutal. Whereas well, the rest of them, they're just ruthlessly efficient. That's just wholesale slaughter. But when you get into a legion like the Night Lords, that absolutely have a awful reputation for a reason. There's a short story where Kurz is flaying half the population of this planet and then throwing them out of the ships onto the cities, these flayed bodies. It's 
certainly a worse reputation to have, but you'd think if this officer was talking about horrible shit space Marines have done, that would be one of the references. Well, and I think ultimately though, they show the, they show the quietude of battle there to show that, you know, these space wolves are good space Marines and they can break a deadlock and get everybody in uh, where they need to be. So eventually it, it seems odd that they pulled all the troopers back, then dropped a big you know, satellite on that planet and then just sent all the troopers back again. Wonder if there would have been a different way to do that, but I suppose it worked. Um, right after well, the again, battle, if they were particularly brutal, they wouldn't have pulled the soldiers back. They would have just dropped the thing anyway. Right. And so, what is the so then? What is the point of that battle against the quietude? How does that move the story along? I think it it does paint the picture of of Hauser understanding how these space wolves operate. But then again, if the if they think that he's a Thousand Suns spy and the Thousand Suns big prerogative in the galaxy is to know everything, they would already know how the space wolves function. Right. So I guess that, you know, that quietude, we get a a chance to see him working as a scald and telling the stories. So, I mean, that part was kind of interesting. Yeah. This, this does come into kind of his own development in a way he goes from this, this, uh, conservator basically to the storyteller and he, he gets in a fight so okay yeah he he does figure out that they've essentially they've almost turned him into a demi astartes he's got super dense bones he's got increased uh skeletal structure uh, sorry uh muscular musculature he's got uh reformed skin basically they took him from like an 80 year old man and turned him into like a fit 30 year old man and which also doesn't make sense if you know this guy's a spy you don't hand if you know someone's a spy you don't go here's a pistol yeah because they, they could have just put him in a ravenor chair right and that they could shut off when they wanted to yeah. um and i understand for, that he doesn't even in his demi astartes ish state he doesn't pose a real threat to them but the the principle remains the same um, shortly after the quietude battle, we do get a little shout out to the battle of Ulanor because they declare that the emperor has retired from the campaign. And cause he's asking them if they were sad about missing being there when the emperor planted his sword on, uh, Ulanor and handed off everything to the war master. So there is a little bit of, um, tying into the rest of the rest of the stories there. So we can kind of gauge the timeline a little bit by that event. Um, and it seems like there were, but I think more interestingly for me was when, when we get to see more of the stuff going on with Nikea. But before we get there, were there any other things that you guys that jumped out of you before we get to Nikea? I like when he's hanging out with Longfang. I do like that scene. I think Longfang's probably one of my favorite characters of the book. He's not in it for very long, but I think a pretty clear picture is painted of who he is, what he's doing. Yeah, I, I got nothing to call out here. Did, did you guys find that you were ever falling into the trap where you couldn't remember which space wolf he was talking with? Um, because they, a lot of the characters seemed very similar. Or was that an issue? Not for me. Not so much. Um, I'll, I, I could definitely see how you would fall into that, though. Okay, so they do. So after he finishes, well, he almost finishes all of his uh, songs and his stories about who died. Then they get called out. They've, they've got to go somewhere else, and they start um, 
moving the ship to to Nikea. And uh, do you guys want to just give a little brief background of what Nikea is and why it's important? So Nikea was the council held right after, oh, shortly after Eleanor. And it was a council to kind of decide the fate of the use of psychers throughout the Imperium. Now, there's kind of this white-held white belief throughout humanity that unchecked use of psychers is what led to the Dark Age. Uh, what kind of shut down the, the whole galaxy and separated humanity from its far-flung colonies. Or separated Earth from its far-flung colonies, I should say. Now... Nikea wasn't just a council of our psychers, good or bad. It was also to call to account Magnus, who, as we saw in the Thousand Suns book, Magnus and the Thousand Suns had had this greatly unchecked use of power that has proved to be very dangerous. And they're, they're, this council's prerogative is basically to censor him or exonerate him, basically. And it, it comes down to the Emperor making this very broad decision basically that says only astropaths, only navigators and only very, very few sanctioned psychers. So how we're introduced to it is that uh, Hauser is, is uh, taken in with this delegation of space wolves, but they're supposed to be hiding because they don't, they don't want the thousand sons and Magnus to know that any of them are there because they would see that as a, uh, maybe an escalation or a provocation that they don't want, and it uh, one of the, the the Jarls decides to send Hauser to the quiet room. And the quiet room, when he gets there, he finds out is quiet because it's full of the Null Maidens, and he's really uneasy. And he actually pulls an axe on him, which I thought was pretty ballsy. But they pretty quickly, and he talks about how alluring they are. But pretty soon they've got their all their swords pointed at him until there's this rumble uh, in, in the background that he does not understand. And it turns out it is Lehman Russ. We get to have a nice little talk with Lehman Russ here. I thought that I th part was pretty interesting. Yeah, I thought this scene was really cool. And I thought it was well written because it kind of shows how, uh, how out of place these Primarchs are, like out in the wild, so to speak, or out in kind of public, because Lehman Russ is so big and dynamic and uh, superhuman that Hauser doesn't even register that this giant is in the room until he starts speaking at him. And what we find out in this scene is that if Hauser is under the influence of these Null Maidens, these Sisters of Silence, he cannot speak the Fenerizian languages. And Lehman Russ says that because Lehman Russ tries to talk to him in Uvic or uh, the Battle Camp and Hauser cannot understand him, and it's not until Lehman Russ starts speaking in Logothic that Hauser can understand him again. So it proves that whatever put him on Fenris has tampered with his mind. And the the wolf priests have told him up to this point because they, they explain what they the the kind of rebuilding of his body, but they never touched his mind. So something else is kind of piloting him or influencing him in some way. It's something we haven't mentioned yet, but one of the names that he also goes by is Ahmed Ibn Rusta. And this is a, a callback to a famous uh, explorer. Go ahead, Ahmad Falan. And uh, one of the other books I read to get ready for this was Eaters of the Dead by Michael Crichton. And it's this um, 
this Arab, Arab, yeah, Arab traveler who gets sent by his caliph to go treat with the Vikings, basically. And he gets wrapped up in this big adventure later on. And it's, it's a parallel. So Casper used the name Ahmad Falan or Ahmad Ibn Rister as a kind of shibboleth to get in with the, the space wolves because the, the former uh, Jarl that kind of approved him coming to Fenris, uh, he was described as having a poetic soul. So he got the story. He knew the ancient reference. And clearly Casper picked that name as well because he said he got bored after making a thousand requests to enter the, the planet that he used that name and then it made this Jarl laugh and then that, that brought him down. And so if you haven't, if you Longbeards haven't yet seen the, the movie, The Eaters of the Dead, is that the name of the movie, Warwick? No, The 13th Warrior. It's got the Antonio thir- Banderas yeah. in it. 13th Warrior with Antonio Banderas, who's a Mexican playing a, a an Arab. But it's a pretty good movie. Classic Hollywood, baby. You gotta love it. But pretty soon, Russ gets bored of the conversation and then hauls uh, Casper in kind of a humorous moment to the this observation room where our old buddy Fulgrim shows up and everybody's getting really nervous because they don't want anyone to know that Russ is there, but Russ keeps yelling and shouting and laughing and making a big fuss to the point where you've got all these custodes and Astartes and Fulgrim trying to drag him out of there. The, this is a really fun scene for me because um, Constantine Valdor is there and he's like the, the captain of captains of the custodies. He's the, the emperor's right hand man. And he and Lehman Russ are best friends, but we don't get that until later in the scene when, uh, Russ threatens to pull off his arms and jam them up his ass. And Constantine Valdor just goes, you know, your need to play the barbarian King is amusing and all, but this is really important and you need to calm down. And it's I I think that the scenes with Russ are some of the best scenes in the book because of instances like that or like uh, later on when they're given when they're debriefing Hauser. Um, what does uh, Hauser says something like I was thrown to the wolves and he turns to Russ and says no offense and Russ just laughs at it but later on in the conversation he says something like uh, Constantine says. He makes another wolf reference and how's or he again turns to Russ and says, no offense. And Russ just says, no worries. I also dismember. And he's got wordplay in him. He's, he's far smarter than anyone gives him credit for. And it's very amusing wordplay in, in that, in that instance. But then towards the end of that scene, then we kind of get, we, we finally get this hint that there are greater powers at work because when Casper leaves that situation, he does confront this demon in the, in the shape of a thousand sons uh, warrior. And they have a little interchange that was interesting. It should be said who all is there. It is Lehman Russ, Fulgrim, and like uh, Casper is just completely shocked that Fulgrim knows who he is. So Lehman Russ, Fulgrim, Ralderon of the Blood Angels, Typhon of the Death Guard, Constantine Valdor, and Amon Turamachian, uh, the last two of which are custodies. These are all very big names in the Horus Heresy era, and they all know who Casper is because he was a very well-known member of the conservatory before he randomly disappeared on this ill-advised trip to Fenris. 
And this is where it's all laid out that the conservatory actually had, you know, big support from Malkador himself. The emperor was entertaining it personally. And if he had just stuck with the program, kind of stayed in his lane, you know, their staff would have increased. The conservatory would have gone on under its own steam. But because he dropped off the radar, it all got swept under the rug. And he's just kind of distraught at this point. Like my entire life's work are basically gone now because I've been manipulated. And it's revealed that, you know, he's kind of in shock. Like nobody would pick a child at birth and then manipulate their life for 80 years to get them into this position. And Typhon goes, we do it all the time. You know, there, there are multiple agencies in the Imperium that do this kind of stuff. And that's, that's the big reveal there. So, so then we're, we're left with this, uh, this hint that because this, you know, once, once Casper leaves that meeting there, he does encounter the demon, but we're still not quite sure if it's uh, the demon or if it's the demon has possessed this thousand son or what, what's really going on there. It's not a possession but, because Amon is down by Magnus' side during the, the trial. Right, but we don't find that out till later. So in the middle of the scene, you're not you're kind of left wondering, is this a thousand son or is it some, is it someone else? What's really going on here? We just don't know. Uh, but in the end, it doesn't matter that much because they still end up going to Prospero in the end to enforce the edict. Because what we don't see in the midst of this is that they have concluded the the edict of Nikea. They're still trying to break open how uh, Casper's mind to figure out who's really in there. And in the end, uh, while this is all going on, Magnus breaks the edict by warning the emperor about uh, Horus turning to chaos. And so but we don't, what story do we actually see that in? Is, has that actually happened yet in the books you guys have recovered or is it later on? Yeah, that was in thousand sons. That was a couple books ago. It's, it's a really cool scene because Magnus is this luminal uh, or luminous being flying across the galaxy and, uh, it's it's very well written. Yeah, and we get more of this like they're trying to crack open Hauser's brain, and it goes poorly, and like this rune priest dies and gets well, possessed. The, yeah, and... the rune priest gets possessed, and uh, you know Hauser sees the the warning that's coming of the the anatheme that strikes uh, strikes down Horus, and so Hauser's got all the pieces of what actually happens there, but because he's the space wolves know he's a spy they don't believe him and at one point russ says consider the the reverse you know magnus is engineering a problem that only he has the solution to to try and win back our father's favor and so they just they shut hauser down at every turn so in the end all that's left is to actually get to prospero burning what did you guys think of the conclusion when they, when they actually finally assault the city and have the final conflict there with the with the demon the, I, I have a bit of a complaint here, which is that we play the bedroom scene on the orbital ring. I, I understand it. It just gets played a few too many times. I mean, we, yeah, they're, they, they're, they repeat that like 10 times. It's probably more than 10 because they keep yeah. going through him waking up, the alarm ringing, trying to get through and, and break through the, the process. Yeah, that did get a little annoying. So Abnett does paint for me, a vivid picture of the, the assault on Tiska. And they do kind of emphasize how even though the Space Wolves view the Thousand Suns as these these evil magic-wielding, wielding, sorry, <clears throat> even though the Space Wolves view the Thousand Suns as these 
magic-wielding warlocks that have committed unspeakable evil, they still acknowledge them as Astartes warriors, and even the Prospering Guard are acknowledged as brave men because they still stand and fight against the Space Wolves' onslaught. But we know from the Thousand Suns' perspective in in the book Thousand Suns when Araman looks into the mind of Othar Weirdmake, he sees that Horus has set the wolves on a, a, you know, given the Thousand Sons the death sentence, basically. Because the Emperor has still wanted Russ to arrest Magnus and bring him back to Terra, along with the Thousand Sons. And they don't have, the Space Wolves don't have a way to communicate with Thousand Sons because Magnus has shut down all communications. And even though Russ tries to communicate through Hauser, he can't because Hauser's not actually Magnus's spy. Yeah, and I think that's really the big reveal is that the Thousand Sons really have nothing to do to do with Hauser. That's kind of been kind of a uh, that's another tro- that's another uh, uh, red herring that we've been following. But it turns out it's just the demon who's been doing this, and he says that you know you know two legions fighting each other is just the prelude now wait till it's more and so this has all been you know just as planned as this but i i thought it was gonna be a tazinchin demon but it looks more like a nurgle demon here at the end was there what do you guys think about that so abnett tends to do that basically in all of his demon writing is that whenever they manifest in the the moral realm so to speak is that they broadly affect everything around them and it's just this kind of miasma this uh you know it talks about how like the the air thickens to rancid soup and it summons a cloud of flies but i think that's just warp bullshit i don't okay. i don't so think it's, it's that, just corruption in general it's not right one of the and powers. it he generally does not specify the um uh how can't think of the word the association with whatever power of the warp. And this should be a Zinchian demon, you're right. And it, it should be like a, a key, uh, no, the um, a Fate Reverse. Yeah, a Lord of Change or something like that. But uh, he just doesn't, for whatever reason, I don't know why he doesn't just write it like that. He leaves it far more ambiguous. And that is one of my problems with some of his writing. But in, in the big reveal, it is revealed that this is a, a demon that has been pushing Hauser along and manipulating the enmity between the Thousand Sons and the Space Wolves. You know, he this demon talks about how, talking about Russ's psychopathic tactics and vicious tendencies, Magnus's unchecked necromancy and sorcery, and it's built this very compelling picture for both sides to not like one another. But in the end, it's funny that even with, with all the buildup to the how badass the, the Space Wolves are, who actually saves the day in the end? It's not them. It's the Sisters of Silence because... The Sisters of Silence, yeah. They, they're able to rush in and shut down the, the demon's powers, basically, and the Dreadnoughts are, are able to kill it. Yeah, but, and it's just a cakewalk, yeah. Um, that, that was another element of the Fang that I wanted to talk about because I thought it was really cool, is that when Hauser is in cold sleep, he talks about how they're in this dark space and they can barely kind of see this campfire and shadows of one another. And, you know, they can talk and tell stories and they, they dream dreams over and over again. They've dreamed all the dreams a thousand times. And at one point he's able to talk to one of these other voices 
and it's like shouting right in his ear. It's like um, it's telling him to see, see squirming and is, is squirming is wriggling and just let them all rest. And at one point Hauser says, I don't like the dark. And the voice just says, none of us like the dark. None of us chose to be here. And later on in the book, you find out that it's one of the dreadnoughts. So it's implied that while he's in cold sleep with the rest of the dreadnoughts, they share kind of this um, loose network almost of where they're able to interact with one another kind of. And I, I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And one of my favorite parts on the note of dreadnoughts is when we get the reveal of Bear but before that, he's like, he looks at a dreadnought and goes, man, I'd never want to be in one of those. So the one of the things that this demon can do while they're fighting them is that he's got the power of Annuncia, which Abnett has referenced in a lot of his other books. But basically, if this demon knows your name, it can have power over you. But whenever it, it tries to use Bear's name against him it doesn't work. It just shuts down. He, and it, the demon can't figure out why, and it's just enraged. Well, it turns out, as referenced earlier in the book, whatever tampered with Hauser's mind to give him the, the power of language, it keeps misinter misinterpreting Bear's name, because Bear's real name is Bjorn, and the big reveal is that it's Bjorn the Fail-Handed is a young space marine which is really cool. I thought I thought him and Fifth Godsmoke were... Uh, they probably get the most screen time of the Space Marines, but they're probably two of my favorite characters in the book. Yeah, and then in the end, uh, Casper decides to go back into cold storage so they can wake him up when they want him to tell the stories. And, um, and it's, I think that that's the story. Yeah, and it's that, that last scene where he's telling the story, he mentions that I see now the wolves of Fenris are left to guard the the hearth of a home that has fallen into disrepair. So it's actually him in the 40,000th millennia telling this story, not later on in the heresy era. So this is long or long, long or, you know, very far away into the future of him being woke, woken up at random. And he talks about how like, Whenever you have to wake me or the dreadnoughts up, we know it's not because you miss us. It's because it's your most dire times, and that's when you need us the most. So in the end, I guess on this book, I'd say if you're a fan of obscure European mythology, go ahead and go for it. If you want some little bits of description of ancient Terra, that's in there as well. You do get a little bit of Primarch time. You see the Emperor a little bit. Uh, but I'd say give it a read. What's your guys' final take after our discussion? I'm not going to say don't read it. I'm going to say temper your expectations. And apparently do a ton of research before you do. So the the book is a lot of fun for me. I get a lot of these references. Uh, it's, it, it's just a lot of fun for me to read. I've read it a couple of times now. It is a good parallel with uh, a couple other stories I know. One of my problems with it is that it doesn't, really move the needle as far as the galaxy goes, because we've already seen these events take place from the Thousand Suns perspective. I do enjoy the opposite perspective, though, because now we know what the Space Wolves went through, and there was uh, there has been some speculation in, in 40K that, you know, in Russ's later years, he kind of regrets blindly following the Emperor's orders, and that maybe if he could go back, things might be different. We don't really know. I mean, we won't know unless Russ comes back at some point, maybe. I, it's hard to say. 
Um, the the stuff about ancient Terra in the conservatory is really heartbreaking because you see what the Imperium could have been if information had been cataloged better. But we just don't have that when we get to 40k, and it's led to this very ignorant future. So it is kind of heartbreaking, and it, there are a lot of reasons that 40k is the way that it is, and this is just one of them. You guys have given me a lot of context of some of these things that clearly just went over my head. And I appreciate that. Um, that's why I love coming on this show and having these conversations. I got to be honest, that reinforces that it's a bad book to me. Uh, because if you have to have all of this outside knowledge to get that out of this book, it's not giving you enough. Yeah, I'd say that's fair because I, I felt some of that frustration as I'm reading it. Like, this feels like something I should know, uh, but the book didn't give you enough uh, information to, to, to drag you along. And I think uh, the other books have done a better job at that. So well, just leave leave the leave the listener with that. Will, do we want to wrap up here then? Yeah, kind of a shorter episode. But uh, honestly, I think this is about one of the best conversations we've had about a book so far. So... Um, I, yeah, great, uh, great to be here with you guys. And uh, what's our what's our next book, Warwick? Um, that is Age of Darkness. I think that's an anthology. So we're gonna have the whole panel back, which means I think that's it. Let me double check here. Yeah, I believe that is the next book, Age of Darkness. Yep. So we'll have a, a hobby roundtable in a couple of weeks, and then we'll do Age of Darkness which I can't remember what stories are in that one. And I'm not a big fan of the anthology books. I think they're all pretty, most of them are hit and miss. That first one, Tales of Heresy, is pretty good. Um, I know that there are just a couple of duds in there, um, which I'm not a fan of. And then ugh, Outcast did after that, not a fan. But uh, anyway, Age of Darkness is next on the radar. Be on the lookout for that. We'll have something to say there. And then what are you guys do your uh, outros. Thanks for having me on again. I look forward to Tales of Heresy. I pulled my copy out of my own black library and I'll get started reading that. Looking forward to some hobby roundtable next time. And we've got a couple battle reports to do, I think. Yeah, Manipal and I had a fun gaming weekend a couple of weeks ago that we're, we're going to talk about. So why don't you guys go ahead and look us up on social media on the X app at LegionCast18, a Horse Heresy podcast, and shoot us an email at LegionCast18 at gmail.com. Yep, thanks for stopping by, everybody, and remember to march in fortune.